when I was a college student, I went to college downtown Minneapolis, and my parents lived in Plymouth, so it wasn't too far away. And the great thing about that, by going to college not super far away, was that I could bring a bunch of college students home with me who were from Virginia or Missouri or Michigan. And, you know, college students, you get tired of, you know, food in the cafeteria after a while. And my school, North Central University, didn't have the greatest cafeteria in the world. And so students really wanted, you know, a home-cooked meal. And so my mom and my dad, they were super generous. And they'd always say, yeah, you know, bring a student home. Let him do some laundry. Come on over. And, and my mom would just cook great meals. And as a college student, man, that is just the best when you get a home-cooked meal. There's something about sitting down together to share a meal that's just a holy thing. But what made those meals the best, and maybe you've been at someone's house or your mom's done this, is when they say something, when you're done eating, and they say, all right, keep your fork. Because then what's coming, if you know they're saying to keep your fork? Dessert is coming, that's right. You know the best is yet to come, right? You know there's going to be some good dessert. My mom sometimes would make a pie or some other desserts. And so we actually have a fork in front of all of you guys. So go ahead and pull out your fork to pull that out. And we're giving you all your own dessert this morning. You get it. No, I'm just kidding. But you get your fork. But when, when your mom or someone else or your grandma would say, keep your fork, you knew dessert was coming. You knew the best was yet to come. As Christ followers, we believe that God has handed all of us a fork to say, hey, the best is yet to come. That in spite of where things are right now, the best is yet to come. But what do we do by the fact that in our world today, man, we've got hurricanes going on, we've got, you know, uh, protests, we've got, you know, racial injustice, we have all these things surrounding ourselves. So how do we respond to people with different values than us? How do we respond to people with different beliefs than us? Do we, you know, do we protest and do we march in the streets? Do we go online and try to argue with people to get them to see our point of view? Do we just stay quiet and do nothing? What do we do in the fact that we believe that God says the best is yet to come, but we find ourselves in this chaotic world with uncertainty all around us? Well, we like to say everything goes back to Jesus, that Jesus can change anything that Jesus can change everything. So let's look at what Jesus did. How did Jesus respond to people who had different value systems than him, different beliefs? How did Jesus respond to people who even had a different blue book when it came to looking at the value of people? Uh, and uh, here at Mosaic, we like to go through books of the Bible. And so we are in our 36th week of uh, the book of Luke, and we are working our way, and we find ourselves in Luke 14. And uh, I encourage you this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 14. And uh, we're going to see what Jesus does here. Uh, How does he respond to people who are different than him? Would you join me in prayer first? Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you, God, that we get to gather here together to open your word. God, I thank you for uh, the book of Luke and how it wrote down what you did, what you said. And so that, God, we could be more like Jesus and we could follow in his footsteps and do the things that Jesus did. God, I ask that this morning that you would give me your words to say, that I would be clear. 
God, that we would be moved to action. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, inside your program that Jeremy did a great job talking about, uh, but there should be a note sheet in there. And so we encourage you to take notes uh, because we don't want to just give you a bunch of information. We want you to ha have a life of transformation. We think if you hear it, if you write it down, if you see it, if then if you maybe discuss it with your spouse or your family, it'll help get those truths down into your heart. So if you have one of those, uh, the first thing we're going to look at this morning as we look at the story of Jesus in Luke 14, I want you to write this down, is Jesus could be pretty irritating. Jesus could be pretty irritating. Probably not what you're expecting to hear in church this morning, right? But Jesus could be pretty irritating to be around. And see, some of you, or maybe the person next to you, are more like Jesus than you thought. Uh, you didn't realize that. As we look in Luke 14, we're going to see uh, one of the most awkward dinner parties of all time, where Jesus deliberately picked an argument four times in a row. And, you know, compassion might be the quality that Jesus is most famous for. And we've talked about this as we've gone through the book of Luke these last 30-some weeks. Uh, we've seen that when a leper who was an outcast, who was an untouchable, and for years and years no one had been around him, no one had touched this leper. And Luke tells us that when Jesus saw the leper, his heart went out to him, he had compassion on him, and he reached out and touched the untouchable person. And when Jesus met a widow whose only son had died, his heart went out to her, and he healed and raised that son back to life and gave him back to her mother. Over and over again, we see that Jesus has compassion. But I think sometimes we think of Jesus as just this, you know, one of those highly sensitive people, you know, overly emotional, just, you know, crying at the drop of a hat. However, there's other parts of Jesus that don't paint him as this quiet, effeminate, you know, bearded lady kind of Jesus with a beauty pageant sash. Like, that's not the picture of Jesus we get all throughout Luke. We need to remember that Jesus was a blue-collar guy who worked with his hands for most of his life. He went camping with his buddies. Uh, he went fishing all the time and probably caught 28-inch walleyes with the help of Dan Pfeiffer when he went fishing. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Dan took me fishing this week. Uh, Jesus liked to go to parties. There's this one story where Jesus is upset at religious people and how they're treating poor people. That he very quietly goes out of the temple, and his disciples are like, what are you doing, Jesus? He's like, oh, I'm fashioning a whip. You're, what? I'm making a whip. You know, I don't know how long it takes to make a whip, but it's not like instantaneous. So Jesus makes a whip. Then he goes inside, and he goes to town like Indiana Jones on those religious people because they're taking advantage of the poor. You know, Jesus was as dangerous as he was compassionate. You can write that down. That Jesus was as dangerous as he was compassionate. And we're going to look at a story today where Jesus exhibited both of those qualities together. We're going to look at, I think, one of the most awkward dinner parties of all time. Jesus had been invited over to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, and Jesus was being very carefully watched by those Pharisees to see what he would do. And we've talked about this, that our author is a, is a physician, he's a doctor, Dr. Luke. And Dr. Luke tells us our setting. That there's a man with dropsy, which is a, a painful, unattractive, sometimes dangerous condition where parts of the body, maybe your legs or other things, would, just, would balloon with, with fluid. And, and he was present at this dinner. Luke tells us it's also the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath was a, a Jewish uh, thing that lasted from sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday. And the Sabbath was a radical religious observance that set the Jewish people apart. God told the Jewish people they're going to take a day of rest uh, one day every week. No work was to be done. Now, 
in modern America, we take for granted the idea of a five-day work week so much that we don't realize how radical the idea of a Sabbath was. Uh, back in the ancient world, there was no, uh, you know, nothing that compared to it where people would work even just six days a week. Everyone worked every day of the week unless you were very, very wealthy. And so the Jewish people, to take off one day each week was just radical. In fact, the Greeks said that the Jewish people were lazy because they insisted on having a holiday, you know, every single week. It was just totally different than any other culture in that day to take one day off to not work. And in Jewish society, that meant no medical treatment was to be offered on the Sabbath unless someone's life was in jeopardy. So here's this man with dropsy, this painful disease. He's, he's present on the Sabbath at this dinner. Well, if Jesus was just, a, you know, a good dinner guest and just polite, he would have just prepend, pr pr pretended not to notice this man with dropsy. He'd just been like, you know what, this guy needs some help, but you know what, I'm just going to leave it alone because, you know, that'd be kind of impolite to point it out. But Jesus isn't the quiet, meek, good dinner guest kind of guy. Here's what he did instead. Instead of just ignoring this man, Jesus called everyone's attention to this person. He's like, this guy, he's kind of on the margins of society, and he feels invisible, and you guys are all ignoring him? Instead of just ignoring that guy who's an outsider, I want everyone to look at him. Let's, let's all pay attention to the person that you guys are, you know, making an outcast. All right, verse 1, chapter 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying... He gives him a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's like, is, what's lawful here? Should I heal this man or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. He's like, all right, you're not going to answer my question. I'm going to answer it for you. Be healed. And he sends the man away. Well, the second thing we see about Jesus is that Jesus is sensitive to people's suffering. Jesus is sensitive to people's suffering. Jesus presents this question to the religious people. Is it okay to heal this guy or not? And the religious people, they kept their mouths shut. So Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. The religious rules stated that you couldn't heal someone, you couldn't work on the Sabbath. Well, the other guests present, they're not very happy about this. When the host doesn't invite the guy who's just been healed to stick around for dinner, so Jesus does what the host should have done and, you know, bids him farewell. He's like, hey, be blessed, go on your way. It's like, well, boy, that was awkward. Jesus, why do you have to do that? Pay attention, you know, draw attention to this guy with this painful condition. You know, if Jesus had a good social radar, he would have realized now's a good time to kind of change the subject, you know, start talking about the Vikings and if they're going to be good, you know. And, but he doesn't. Instead, he asks, uh, hey, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? He's like, if one of your animals or your, your ch children, if they fell into a well on a Sabbath, you're going to still pull them out because that's the right thing to do. And they could not reply to these things. And they're just quiet. They're like, Jesus, you're making us pretty uncomfortable now. And this is not like a comfortable silence. Like it's that like moment before a big storm is about to break. See, the issue here isn't that Judaism is a religion of legalism and Jesus came to start a new religion called Christianity. Jesus was thoroughly Jewish. He was a rabbi who loved the Torah, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. See, the issue here is, what's the worth of a human being? What's the worth of a human being? 
You see, religion cares all about rules, but Jesus cares about people. Religion cares all about rules, but Jesus cares about people. We're obsessed with worth. We want to know the worth of everything. Like, if we want to know the worth of our car, think about selling it, we can look up the blue book value, and then we'll probably be blue, because our car's worth less than we wish it was, you know? But Jesus here, he's getting a little hot under the collar, because in the face of deliberately ignored suffering, Jesus is not some highly sensitive, compassionate person. He's a highly irritated, compassionate person. In the face of deliberate suffering, Jesus gets a little irritated with people. See, these Jewish leaders thought they were going to watch Jesus. Instead, Jesus is watching them. And these Jewish leaders thought they were going to judge Jesus. Instead, Jesus is judging them. Boy, that's pretty awkward, isn't it? <laughs> well, the guy who invited everyone to dinner, he's the host, and he's probably thinking, boy, I hope whoever talks next picks a safer topic. Uh, but Jesus talked next, and he didn't pick a safer topic. See, Jesus noticed how all the leaders picked their places of honor at the table. This is simply one more way that we value some people more than others. We violate God's blue book. So Jesus gives some more tongue-in-cheek advice, verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is basically saying to the host, Hey, host, uh, let me give you some seating advice. Your seating chart is all wrong. You think healing on the Sabbath is wrong and that competing for status and honor is right? Let me redo your table assignments. Honor somebody else. Well, by now, all the religious leaders, they're embarrassed. They don't know what to do. For sure, they don't know what to sit. I'm sure they're like, should I get up and move? I don't know what I'm supposed to do, Jesus. And I'm sure the host is thinking, I really hope Jesus doesn't have any more advice. But Jesus is on a roll. Twelve, he said to the man who invited him, he turns to the host, hey, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Jesus is saying, don't just invite your friends, don't just invite your relatives to dinner. Side note, if you have some relatives that you don't want at, like, Thanksgiving dinner, here's your verse. You're like, Jesus tells me not to invite my relatives for dinner. I'm sorry. That's, that's Jesus, you know. He says this, though. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus is not giving a new law here. He's contrasting God's blue book with ours. See, to the Pharisees, they're like, all right, inviting the poor over for dinner? Okay, I can get behind that. But the crippled, the lame, the blind, like, that's a whole other issue here, Jesus. Why is that? Why is that such a big deal to these guys? Well, in this culture, anything malformed or defective was considered by the Pharisees or the religious people to be unable to reflect the holiness of God. See, God is holy and perfect, and so anything malformed or defective couldn't reflect the holiness of God. And therefore, nothing malformed or defective was allowed inside the boundaries of the temple. 
And the Pharisees, they took great pride in following perfectly in their homes the regulations that were supposed to govern the temple. See, the Pharisees believed that the temple that had been rebuilt had been corrupted by Rome. See, Herod had taken the temple and he mixed Roman imperial symbols in with the temple and did some other shady stuff. So the Pharisees thought the temple had been corrupted. And so they thought they could honor God by treating their homes as these miniature temples. And so all the regulations that should be observed in the temple, they observed in their home. So that means for Jesus to tell his host, a prominent Pharisee, to deliberately invite malformed, defective people into his holy little temple was a deliberate slap in his face. See, religion cares all about rules, but Jesus cares about people. But Jesus' crankiness and compassion came from the same source. His outrageous love for every individual. Well, back to the most awkward dinner party ever. By now, everyone's blood pressure is off the charts. And I love this. Some, like, you know, highly sensitive guest, you know, uh, someone who's just aware of, like, the tension in the room is like, I gotta change the topic. Right here. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Like, how random is this guy? Like, he's like, Bread! <laughs> What? But you gotta love Jesus. He's not gonna be distracted. So then he launches into a story about who is gonna be on the guest list for the feast in the kingdom of God. And I'm sure his host is thinking, oh, all right, here we go again. No one's ever gonna come over again to my house for dinner. Verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field, and I must go out to see it. Please have me excused. This guy started a new business. He's like, sorry, I can't come. i got to see to my business. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. i got a new bass boat. i got to go take it out. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. What? Like, yeah, like, because women don't like to go to parties? That's the stupidest excuse. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Nicholas Wolstroff, he's a professor of philosophical theology at Yale University, he says this, Jesus' understanding of who are the downtrodden has been expanded well beyond the Old Testament understanding to include not just the victims of social structures and practices. We've talked about this, how the Old Testament again and again and again tells us to look after the widows, the orphan, the aliens, the poor, the imprisoned, but also those excluded from full participation in society because they are defective, malformed, or seen as religiously inferior. The coming of God's just reign requires that these two be lifted up. See, religion cares about rules, but Jesus cares about people. And compassion, this idea of caring for people, became the mark of Jesus' followers. Not so they could earn their way into salvation, not so that they could get right with God, but because his followers, remember, they followed a rabbi who would reach out and touch the untouchable leper who hadn't felt human contact in years. That he would pick fights with religious people about the value of a human life. 
that they followed a rabbi who had compassion on the out, of those who were on the outskirts of society, women and children, foreigners. And Jesus' followers changed the world. It wasn't because they believed in new religion. It, was because, it wasn't because they thought they needed to earn their salvation. See, Jesus came teaching this radical concept. Not only are we to reach out to the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, but see, Jesus teaches us that each one of us, we are the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. That on our own, there's nothing we could do to be made right with God. We are on the outskirts. But Jesus, he invites us in. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus offers a fork to every one of us. He says, come, sit, dine. The kingdom of God is characterized oftentimes as a feast, as a dinner. I think that is so beautiful. See, on our own, we can't get to God, but Jesus came and he invites us to sit at the great feast. It's this idea of grace. Not because we deserve it, but simply because of Jesus' love. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. If we jump ahead a little bit into Luke 19.10, it tells us the mission of Jesus. Why did he come? For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus' mission on earth is to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to find the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the imperfect, the broken, to seek them, to save them, to invite them in to the great banquet in the kingdom of God. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to do the same thing, to seek and save the lost, the broken, the people who are hopeless, the people who are looking for just for some love in their life. That is our mission. That is why we exist. And Jesus invites us to step up, to join him in seeking and saving the lost. We read this scripture earlier this morning in our worship service. I want to read it again. This is a picture of where we are going. This is the vision that we are striving towards. Jesus says, this is the finish line. Revelation 7, verse 9 through 17. This is John, one of Jesus' followers, who uh, was, was carried up into a vision to see a picture of what heaven is going to look like. And here's how he describes it. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and power, and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. All right, so pause real quick here. So, 
evangelicals, that's us who believe the Bible's true. Sometimes we take this, and sometimes Revelation, we like take one little verse and blow it out of context, and we're like, oh, tribulation. I remember that, the Left Behind movie. It's all about this. Maybe, we don't really know. Uh, John is writing to a bunch of people who are living in Rome at this time, who are being crucified, who are being fed to lions, who are being burned alive. I think they thought they were going through a great tribulation. Right now, there are Christians around the world who are being beheaded and burned and killed for their faith. I think they're going through a great tribulation. This isn't just about some left-behind book series. But God is telling us that all of us, we're going to go through stuff. But at the end, it's going to be worth it. As we face tribulation, as we face trials, as we go through an uncertain world, the best is yet to come. That we'll be joined by all nations, all languages, all tribes coming together, worshiping Jesus. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in their midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more tears, no more thirst, no more hunger, no more trials, no more tribulations. As we join together, all nations, all tribes, to worship Jesus. The best is yet to come. See, Jesus, we've been walking through the book of Luke, and he's on his way to the cross. He's working his way towards Jerusalem, and what faces him in Jerusalem is the cross. Because there he's going to lay down his life for us. Because on our own, there's no way we could be made right with God. We're all poor, crippled, blind, and lame. But you see, the cross wasn't simply the tragedy of Jesus laying down his life for us. The cross was a strategy. Jesus says this, that those who lay down their lives will find their lives. The way for us to be like Jesus is to lay down our lives, our preference, to humble ourselves, to let others have that place of honor so that we can be like Jesus, so that we can seek and save the lost. What that might look like as a community is that sometimes we may have to lay down our own personal preferences. Thank you for being here. I know, summertime, we don't have air conditioning. It's hot. You're sitting on a metal chair. There's a lot of things you could be doing with your time. You know, we have people back there serving kids, and, and they want to be in here with, with, you know, for the message and, and the worship. But the way of Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm going to lay down my preferences, what I want, to be like Christ, so that those who are broken, those who are on the outskirts, can be invited to sit and dine with Jesus. And we need to move from simply having compassion for the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. That's a start. How can we be compassionate? How can we 
reach out and find the broken and, and, and point people to Jesus. But we need to move from just compassion to empowering the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame to preach the kingdom of God. See, I believe that Jesus invites each one of us to participate with him by inviting people to the table to, to eat with the family of God. In other parts of Revelation, it, they describe eternity as heaven, as, as a dinner with Jesus. I want you to take that fork home who can you invite into God's kingdom? Who can you invite literally over for dinner? Maybe there's a neighbor. Maybe there's a coworker who's going through a tough time. There is something sacred and holy about sharing a meal together. That's why when we do Starting Point, we invite everyone to come check that out. We eat tacos together. My desire as your pastor is that every single person at Mosaic has a chance to share a meal with me at some point at least in my home. That's why we do that. It's, you get to know each other as you share a meal, as, as we eat together. Take that fork home. Maybe write their name with a sharpie on it. This, who can you reach out to? Who can you seek? Who can you try to f help them find salvation through Jesus? Those of us who are followers of Christ, we were poor and crippled and blind and lame, and then Jesus came and saved us. Now there's a whole bunch of people out there who are looking for that same opportunity to find hope and healing through Jesus. It's time for us to step up, to reach out. To let the praises of God echo throughout Maple Grove and the surrounding area. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. As they do, I want to close with just uh, a story. And then we're going to do a, a, just a time of response. And this is a time where uh, we're just going to respond to what God is speaking to you right now, and then we'll close with a, our, our final song. There's a story of uh, many years ago, down south, there was this community, and they were living in this terrible drought, and there was no rain for many, many months. And they were worried that they were going to lose everything. And that they needed God to move and send his reign. And so they said, we're going to gather together and pray that God would send his reign so that things would be saved. And so as they, as they gathered together and prayed, little old lady in their community Sister Agnes showed up. It's a hot August day, but she shows up in her rain jacket and carrying an umbrella. And they're like, Sister Agnes, it's like 100 degrees outside. It's super hot. Why are you wearing your rain jacket? She's like, because it's going to rain. And they prayed and they prayed. And then a raindrop here and a raindrop there and a rain and all of a sudden it started pouring water and there's sister agnes and she's dancing in the streets with her umbrella and her rain jacket and then everyone realized oh no we left all our windows open at home because 
we didn't think it was actually going to rain. But God wants to send his rain, his blessing, his kingdom here on earth. As we pray for lives to be changed, as we pray for his kingdom to come, do we really believe that's going to happen? Or are we just going through the motions? I want us to be a community of faith that believes that God is on the move, that God wants to use us, that the best is yet to come, as we partner with Jesus to invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame in to feast in the kingdom of God. Would you join me in prayer? God, I pray that our hearts would be moved. God, that those of us who follow you, that we would be broken for those in our community who are in need of hope and healing. God, that you would send your rain, that heaven would fall here. God, that the walls of injustice and racism and addiction and abuse would be broken. God, that you would use us to find those who need you. God, that we would not sit on the sidelines, but that we would be drafted into your service. God, I pray that we wouldn't do it on our own strength, but that by your strength, you would fill us, sustain us, move us, break our hearts with compassion for those who are lost and, and needy. God, I pray that we'd break our hearts for our own sin, that we would confess it, that we would become more like you, Jesus. God, that we would step up and follow you. Be with us now, God. I pray that during this song that our hearts would be moved, that you would speak to us what you want to reveal to us, to let us know the things we need to let go of, to release, and God, the things we need to receive from you, your mercy, your grace, your love, your compassion. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.